1: Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Measuring inflation is absolutely key to gauging a country's economy and planning policy. But in many places, price changes are tallied the old fashioned way by visiting stores and restaurants. What to do then when they're all closed? And have you ever gone to a gig and felt bad for the opening act? Everyone talking, no one clapping? Well, it's worse than that. A new study finds that being the warm up act for a big name doesn't much help a struggling band's fortunes. First up, though. Global cooperation has not always been easy to find during the COVID-19 pandemic. But if you're sitting in the rich world, think about your lunch. As lockdowns began to settle in, stockpiling and panic buying caused supermarket shelves to empty out. But by road, rail, air and sea, the shipping and logistics industries worked hard to fill them back up. Millions of firms made on-the-spot decisions to adapt, changing suppliers, refitting storage. They're all part of an intricate $8 trillion global food supply chain.
2: So on the import side, we are the number one port for imported green coffee for the U.S. And then on the export side, we're one of the largest ports for export frozen poultry.
1: Janine Mansour is the commercial director of the Port of New Orleans and on the front lines of the supply chain for food into and out of America.
2: So we rely on, you know, the supply chains of um, our exporters and importers. So if there's massive disruption, then of course our volumes are gonna be affected.
1: The pandemic changed food flows across the world as people tried to shop less and cook more. Passenger planes that could normally carry food in their holds were grounded.
2: But fortunately, we really didn't see any huge disruptions. For the first quarter, our our volumes were positive compared to 2019. I think it has shown that the supply chains are rather resilient on the food supply side. The supply chains have recalibrated rather quickly so that you're not seeing as many shortages in the stores now. Companies have been able to increase their supplies as much as they can as quickly as possible.
1: In fact, the whole global network has responded surprisingly well, and prices for most staple foods have fallen this year.
3: The global food supply, or rather we should call it the global food network because it's a very interconnected system, is it, very complex.
1: Matthew Favas is a finance correspondent at The Economist.
3: The food industry as a whole, so from farm to fork, accounts for about 10% of global GDP. It employs perhaps 1.5 billion people, and four-fifths of people worldwide are fed in part by imports.
1: And so this complex food network has proved to, to have some weaknesses in, in the face of a global
3: pandemic. This network, due to its complexity, has a number of weaknesses. On the supply side, there's a number of potential bottlenecks. So first of all, borders. In a lot of countries, crossing borders has become more difficult. So checks are more thorough. That causes delays. And especially in March, we've seen lines of trucks, kilometers of trucks, for example, in Central and Eastern Europe. There's also a bottleneck in the processing part of the of the supply chain. So to produce meat, for example, we've seen in America a number of plants that had to close because of outbreaks of COVID-19. And because there are very, very large plants that created worries that meat would be lacking. And then on demand, there's also a number of shocks that, that can disrupt the system. The first one is the fact that a lot of restaurants, cafes and cafeterias are closed they actually account for about a third of all calories consumed. So a lot of the food that was produced to supply them ends up being stranded and unused. And then the second thing, which is the most worrying, is that as economies shrink, incomes are collapsing and a number of people will face acute food shortages. The UN estimates that could hit 265 million people worldwide. And this is a result of having almost a billion incomes reduced or lost due to the economic fallout of the pandemic.
1: And and how are those weaknesses being dealt with now in in the middle of the pandemic? I mean, starting with the supply side, the the transport, the processing, the border crossings.
3: Yeah, on the supply side, what we've seen is a number of shelves were empty at the beginning. So as people rushed to stockpile food, pasta and tin cans, all the stuff that could be kept. So we saw some shortages there. But in fact, the reasons to worry are not not massive. We, We shouldn't really panic because crops in recent years have been really good. And a lot of the supply chains, a lot of the transport mechanisms, a lot of the, the, the various steps that are needed to to ship the grain from the farm to the food makers, these steps are largely automated. So in fact, the impact that the crisis is having on, on the labour force, for example, is not being seen so much in this area. That's a relief. But for fruits, for perishable and more delicate food, you ship them in the belly of planes, And for this, there's been a few issues. First, because planes don't travel that much compared to, to to the pre-crisis period, but also because the number of containers are still stuck, notably in China, because its exports are have slowed down. Uh, but where there's been some shortages and issues, and some produce have been disappearing from shelves, in fact, there's been some flexibility in the system. We've seen supermarkets in particular being quite nimble at um, finding new import routes to be able to replenish the shelves. So all in all, it's been, it's been actually good to see the supply chain adapt at all steps.
1: So on the supply side, things are, are pretty rosy then?
3: It's not been perfect, obviously. Suppliers to restaurants have had to throw away a lot of food. So we estimate that typically in a, in a rich economy, every year we, we throw away 30% of the food we produce, which is already enormous. But it could be that this year, this reaches is 40%, largely due to the closure of restaurants. French fishermen say they, they release two-thirds of the catch because they can't sell it. Fish is often consumed in restaurants. Uh, some farmers uh, feed their milk back to the cow, at least some of it. But overall, there's not been like a massive shortages and, and, and uh, the, the panic should be subdued.
1: What about the demand side issues that you mentioned? Have, have those leveled out?
3: So we saw this initial peak in demand for some produce. In some cases, it reached 600, 700%. So... It's a sort of unprecedented shock to, to the system. So this is the reason why supermarket shelves went empty for a short while. The risk of hunger remained, not so much because there is a lack of, of food, or lack of supply, but because there's a lack of money. We've seen kilometres-long queues at food banks. Some of them are, are being overwhelmed by the demand they're getting. And in the poor world, a lot of the countries that are typically dependent on imports have seen their currencies tumble. That's already making the imports of food more expensive. But also, for a lot of, of consumers, of the way they buy food typically, they go into informal markets. And some of these markets are typically really crowded and authorities are forced them to close or at least uh, operate as a, as a much lower capacity. So that's threatening also the access to food, not only the affordability of it.
1: And so what's to be done to, to fix those issues that we're, we're now left with?
3: Well, there are two really possible reactions. The first one is is probably the bad one. It would be for governments, those exporting countries that are worried that they will run out of food locally because they sell it internationally. The wrong reaction here would be to impose pretty stringent export controls. So Russia did that, Vietnam did that early on. But we're still short of what happened during the last food crisis, 2007-2008, where we saw the price of staples more than double which had, of course, a massive impact on countries that depend on imports. It added a lot of more people that would then suffer from acute hunger. It is estimated that export controls caused most of the increase in rice prices we saw over the period. So that really should be avoided. The good reaction would be for governments to help the poor in their own countries by giving them cash, but also to foster coordination worldwide. So we've already seen a promising first step. 22 members of the World Trade Organization last month uh, promised to keep borders open and to, to make sure trade would continue to flow. That's a good thing. They should be doing more of this, and uh, more projects should be covered, and also they should make sure what they announce in such statements is, is binding, uh, just uh, declarations that perhaps won't be respected in the future.
1: Matthew, thank you very much for your time.
3: You're very welcome, Jason.
1: Later today, our sister podcast Money Talks will be tracing the faltering food chain back from stockpilers and food banks to the farm. We were effectively asked to reduce by about 12% overnight production of milk at one of our, our two operating farms. You just can't turn a cow off,
3: so to speak. So we're left with effectively having to throw it out. It's dumping money, effectively, what it is in our view.
1: Listen to this week's episode of Money Talks on Economist Radio, to find out how the global food system needs to change to keep on feeding the world through the pandemic and beyond.
2: Traffic jams, tailgating, pile-ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit EnergyCitizens.org, paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.
1: Today, markets in China fell after the country's National Bureau of Statistics released price data that missed expectations. In many countries, prices are rising at a slower pace, if they're rising at all, because demand has slumped during the pandemic. The problem for policymakers is that these economic data might not be telling them the full story.
4: So inflation, that's the change in prices in an economy, is really one of the big three sets of economic statistics. You've got price statistics, sort of labor, jobs market statistics, and economic output and economic growth.
1: Duncan Weldon is Britain economics correspondent at The Economist.
4: The way we measure inflation is, you know, in each um, economy, the National Statistics Office picks what they think of as a representative basket of goods and services, the kind of thing they think a typical person spends their money on. And they measure the change in that overall basket of goods over time. And what we normally want is a, a small amount of inflation, maybe around two percentage points, just a little bit of moderate price growth, which helps sort of oil the wheels of the economy.
1: And how are the prices in that basket of goods normally calculated?
4: Okay, so it's collected in many ways in what sounds quite an old-fashioned way. So the stats office will literally send people out to go to different shops and check the price of the goods in the basket. So in the United States, for example, about two-thirds of the prices that go into the consumer price inflation data every month are usually collected by someone turning up and physically checking them. In other countries like Britain, it's more like half are collected from shops. Of course, the actual composition of the basket varies country by country because of decisions made by the National Stats Office and because of different consumer spending habits. So some sets of inflation data, for example, include rental prices, some just completely exclude housing.
1: And obviously going shop to shop to gather up price data is a little bit fraught in the, in the pandemic era.
4: It's very fraught. So in France, for example, they stopped sending out their collectors in the middle of March. In Britain, and in many other countries, lots of shops are physically closed. So, you know, how are you meant to go and check a price when the shop isn't there? How are you meant to measure the price of a pint of beer in a bar or pub when the pubs and the bars are all closed? So there's lots of missing information, and it's much harder to collect this stuff. But there's a bigger problem as well with how the pandemic is affecting inflation data. Because like I said, you know, it's based on a basket of goods and services which are thought to be sort of broadly representative of how a typical consumer is spending money. But consumption patterns have changed really, really quickly. So in many countries, you know, sort of leisure activities, hospitality activities, going to bars, going to pubs, that sort of thing, can make up 20 or 30% of the basket. But obviously at the moment, that's not how people are spending money. So what's being measured It's both harder to collect the data for, and what is being measured is no longer representative of how people are actually spending money.
1: So how are these government statisticians then dealing with the the problem at hand?
4: So statisticians are being sort of quite flexible and quite responsive to what's happening. So they're obviously relying a lot more on telephone calls, on information supplied directly by retailers, and on collecting prices online rather than sending out, you know, physical data gatherers they're having to make judgment calls on how they account for prices where the goods currently you know, aren't even on sale. It's like, you know, what is the price of a pint of beer in London at the moment? We don't know because nobody is selling them. And some national stats officers are trying to basically provide almost two different measures of inflation at the moment. The actual official measure, based on the old sort of pre-pandemic basket of goods and services, and a more up-to-date measure, reflecting current spending patterns but stats offices around the world are you know warning this data is going to be quite a lot less reliable than normal
1: but the other of the the big three data sets you mentioned labor market and economic output surely those are thrown pretty out of whack by the current situation as well
4: I mean all economic statistics are going to be a bit out of whack at the moment so you know in the labor market for example um, you can collect a lot of data you know centrally by looking at welfare receipts by looking at real-time information from the tax system. But usually, stats officers like to have some form of household survey data, and that's much harder to do at the moment. When we're looking at the really big data, economic growth, economic output data, a lot of that, at least in the initial stages, relies on companies and firms filling in forms to tell stats officers about how much work they're doing, what their output levels look like. And as you can imagine at the moment, with output collapsing, with firms under a lot of pressure, filling in forms for your national stats office isn't really a high priority. So again, all of this data at the moment is going to be a bit more rough and ready than we've got used to in rich economies.
1: And what are the implications then? How how are those numbers used in, in ways that, that will affect people in the longer run?
4: Well, I think particularly in sort of the advanced rich economies, we've just got used to this idea. We've got good timely, accurate information on the state of our economy. You know, the way I think of it is, it's a bit like central heating in your house. It's something you just take for granted. And if your central heating breaks down in the summer, you probably won't miss it that much. But if your central heating breaks down in the winter, when you really want to heat your house, that's when you really miss it. And that's sort of what's happening right now. Economic data that we've got used to is breaking down just when we need it the most, when we're in real difficult economic times. So policymakers are going to be flying a bit more blind than normal. But specifically on inflation, one real problem here is in lots of countries, inflation data is used to uprate um, benefits. So, you know, the amount that you increase social security payments by is based on a measure of inflation. Now, if you're not measuring inflation accurately, if, say, you are understating inflation because you're you know, basing inflation on lots of people spending money in restaurants, then you can get into this real problem that you're upgrading benefits by less than people that need those benefits. Cost of living is actually increasing. So, you know, this sounds like it's just a problem for statisticians and economists, but I'm afraid it might have real world consequences.
1: Thanks very much for your time, Duncan.
4: Thank you very much for having me.
1: There isn't a single facet of life almost anywhere on the planet that has not been affected, upended by the COVID-19 pandemic.
4: Things are getting pretty ugly. Investors are running away from assets they see as risky.
0: There is the risk that skepticism and fear and mistrust kind of snowballs into something that becomes as big of a problem in the fight against COVID as COVID itself.
1: For the latest on the pandemic and more, join us on Economist Radio. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. So, you want to be a rock star? Well, first, you've got to get a band together, write some songs, and pay your dues playing as the opening act, until one day you get to headline the biggest stadiums in the world. But new research suggests that might not be a good way to superstardom.
0: A group of American academics have confirmed what many people in the music industry have long suspected, that being the opening band for a big star is not the first-class ticket to success that you might otherwise think.
1: Michael Hann writes about culture for The Economist.
0: Researchers found that new bands who frequently appeared with high-status artists would actually make less money and were more likely to subsequently split up.
1: And how did these researchers find that out?
0: There were three researchers, Alessandro Piazza, Damon Phillips and Fabrizio Castellucci, and they statistically analysed opening bands over a 10-year period at the start of this century. They discovered that newcomers often have trouble being taken seriously or even noticed in the first place, and they call this the liability of newness. But to be honest, that's not something that would come as a great surprise to people who've spent a lot of time around the live music scene. Biff Byford, the lead singer of the British heavy metal band Saxon, recounts in his autobiography how his band got early breaks supporting Motorhead in 1979. But, he wrote, they didn't want to become Motorhead's baby brother band, their pet support bands, so they started pulling away from that. So, yeah, it's been evident for more than 40 years that it's not always great to be associated with people more successful than you. But it's not all bad. I mean, it is something of a leg up for these bands, is it not? Well, you'll find people who say that being in a support act gives you the chance to play bigger venues, to test out your material against audiences who are not familiar with you... There's a chance to learn stagecraft. There's a chance, possibly, that you might be able to sell more merchandise, although that's not always the case. And some bands do these shows for you know, the strangest reasons. I know of one band who went on tour with a huge arena group who did it solely because they'd heard that the backstage catering was amazing. They reported back that, yes, actually, the catering was amazing, but playing the gigs wasn't much fun because the crowds weren't interested in them at all.
1: So if the crowd isn't interested and the band itself loses out, who actually benefits from support acts?
0: Venues want a good support band in so that crowds will come early and spend more on alcohol because that's where the venue's margins are. Promoters like to have a good support band because it might sell the extra one or 200 tickets. There's a difference between a nearly full venue and an absolute sellout. It's actually in many ways the support bands themselves who benefit least from the support band experience.
1: And so is there a kind of a golden ticket for up and coming bands if playing with huge bands isn't it?
0: Well, the occasions where being a support band seems to work well seem to be where there's some semblance of a scene where groups become mutually reinforcing and they become associated with each other and some coolness derives from that. So you'd see that if you look, say, at gig listings from CBGB, the legendary New York club from the mid-70s, where you'd see the Ramones, television, Talking Heads and Blondie all on the same bill. And that created a buzz around the idea of New York punk. And that kind of thing becomes mutually reinforcing. That, that's kind of healthy, but that's a very different thing from getting on the bill to play a series of 20,000 capacity in Norma domes when you're going to be playing to very uninterested people and a very small number of them at a very early stage in the evening. Of course, this is all moot at the moment because no one's getting to play any shows as support bands or headliners. But at some point, all those venues are going to open again. And at that point, just for the sake of those poor bands who are playing in front of almost no one, try and go along early, try and get there at 7.30. And when they come on, applaud extra loud for them. Because you never know, you might actually be seeing the future of music. Equally though, you might be seeing something you'll never hear of again.
1: Michael, thank you very much for your time.
0: Thank you very much.